This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Chris Averill. And if you are interested in growing an agency for sale, winning new business and agency leadership, then look no further because you've come to the right place. Chris is just such a fascinating guy. He starts from really humble beginnings in Birmingham, my patch. Um, and he used to sell fish in the local fish market, the bull ring. And he went from there to growing and selling a really impressive agency, which has allowed him to retire at a level of comfort that makes me just jealous, to be honest. He's got a solid home life and happy home. He's got healthy bank balance, freedom to pursue pretty much anything that he wants to at this point in his life. And he writes it all down in his new book, Bill Sell, Retire, which I absolutely devoured in 24 hours. This is just an absolute masterclass in how to grow and sell your agency. He's such a pleasure to speak to, very humble and down to earth and unassuming and such a nice guy. I could have spoken to him for a very long time. I'm going to stop selling the podcast now and just say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Chris Averill. Chris Averill is an experienced entrepreneur, company founder, author, leadership coach, and mentor. He has built and sold a hugely successful business and now helps others to achieve their business goals. If you're starting a business, growing one, or thinking about selling in the next few years, then this is a conversation for you. His new book is called Build, Sell, Retire, which is all about the truth about M&A and demystifying the M&A process. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Chris Averill, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, Nathan. It's wonderful to be here and I'm very excited to be on your list of people who you do podcasts with. A, a quite an incredible list. I've listened to quite a few and there are some real industry big guns in there. So I'm honoured to have the opportunity to chat to your audience. Well, you are an industry big gun. I mean, what you've done with your career is absolutely fascinating and I'm super excited to drill into it in, in more detail. Let's start with a bit about your background before we get into the deeper M&A stuff and, and your book. So you get your BA honours degree in industrial and product design from Exeter University in 2004. You've since then gone on to build and sell a phenomenal UX design and, and business transformation business, which competed against the likes of Accenture and, and IDO. Go down the list. Did you ever think at that time in Exeter that you would have developed an entrepreneurial career in the way that you have subsequently developed one? Uh, great question. And, and just for the record, I was actually at Plymouth Polytechnic based in Exeter. So I don't want Exeter University to be giving me a hard <laughs> time that they didn't do a product design course. Right. So did I ever expect my career to pan out how it has? I, I don't think I, I sort of set off really knowing where I was going to go with product design. Uh, during my course, I got very much into animation uh, and using uh, CAD design systems and 3D animation. And, and as I did more of that, uh, I really sort of found a passion for using computers rather than physical model making, which is part of the, the course. And I went to uh, Barcelona University on exchange and they had a really brilliant uh, 3D design animation studio. I got really into it there and I came back knowing I wanted to do something in that, that field. But it was a very nascent uh, industry, you know, where are we, early 90s. So there was no real, uh, the internet didn't exist really at the time, certainly no consumer internet. 
and so I guess I just wanted to do something that I enjoyed and uh, that's where my future lay. So no idea it would be, you know, I'd end up running a, a, an international business, uh, you know, competing against the, the biggest names in the industry. Mm. So fast forward to 1999 and you become head of online for Bupa. Tell us how you go from there to founding and becoming the CEO of WAE, which you grew and sold 13 years later. Yeah, so the, the, the story about my, my journey to Bupa and on was, is quite an amusing one. I'll touch on it briefly. So I was working for an a, uh, interactive TV company, the world's first, called Home Choice, based in Welling Garden City. And I was border commuting out of London. Uh, we couldn't expand the TV business because of network restrictions with BT and, and the like. And I saw a job in the back of the Times for Bupa. Uh, looking at someone to come and, and run their their sort of digital side of the business and the website. So I applied, having never worked on the internet. I didn't really understand what the internet was. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you know, we were doing stuff with TV. And, and in my interview, I said, um, you know, how hard can it be? I've been designing for TV and you, you've got a basically a remote control <laughs> for the internet. I've got a mouse, a keyboard, you know, I mean, you know, it's got to be easy. So I kind of, I, I blagged it a little bit. Um, but I felt that <laughs> a little, a, a lot, uh, I felt what I'd learned in my past career, you know, transitioning onto the internet wouldn't be too difficult. And, and as it turned out, it wasn't, you know, Booper was great fun. And, um, you know, I had a lot of laughs there, but I'd also learned a lot. You know, I learned from some very smart people. I was very lucky to be put on a, a fast track, um, development course, you know, so I put in with a lot of senior people to help define the future of, of Booper. So that really got me thinking about, you know, how do you take a corporate and improve a corporate? How do you do digital to change the way that, that customers interact? And it, it was pants. That's the first stuff we did was proper. I look back and just think, oh, I mean, how did that even make it online? But, you know, in, the, in, the, in, that, in those days, websites were pretty basic. If you remember, do you remember there was a guy who, who created a website called A Million Pixels or something? And you could buy a pixel uh, for a dollar. And people were buying 50 pixels and putting a little banner up. And he made a million dollars from this one website. Right. Yeah, I remember something like that. Yeah. That definitely. was what we were competing against, right? It wasn't rocket okay, science. Great. Okay. The bar was pretty low. The bar was very low. Really interested. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so let's talk about building WAE and, and the agency because it's a fascinating story. So you were CEO of WAE from 2003 to 2016, covering UK and US operations, ensuring profitable growth, uh, as well as providing thought leadership and client business strategy, product and service design and behavioral science. Tell us the origin story of the agency and talk about the most significant milestones along that 13 year journey. Okay, so the origin of the agency was uh, I, I had a stint at Arthur Anderson for a couple of years in their business consulting practice, which was brilliant. Taught me lots of lots of commercial stuff and and definitely helped me have the tools to set up my own company. Uh, and I took a year off, came back, um, worked for Agency.com, which at the time was sort of the world's biggest digital only agency. And I just felt what they were doing wasn't very good. The aspects of their UX design practice. You know, they were, they were taking money from clients, but not really giving a good service, not because they were trying to rip people off. It was just that's the way it was in, the, in, that, uh, in those days, sort of early 2003. And I just wanted to do a better job. 
I wanted to get out there, help clients deliver better experiences to their consumers, to their customers. So I set WAE up originally as really an accessibility design business, a user research business to to act as a, a middleman between big agencies and big brands to help the agencies get it right first time and to sort of alleviate the pain us consumers were feeling all the time with just terrible digital design practices. So I guess my trigger was the only way I'm going to make a big difference is do it myself. And I did. My 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 key milestones really were getting your first client, which was which is a massive challenge, mm. and moving from a, a lifestyle business to much more of a, a, a corporate. So for the first year or two, I kind of did a project. I'd go on holiday for a couple of weeks, you know, go to Mexico, come back, do another project, bring in a couple of mates as mm. freelancers, go traveling, come back. And then I, you know, you land a big job and I landed a big job with, with Deloitte's uh, global project. And then I realized actually, you know, I've got to do something proper, you know, get a proper office. I've got to get serious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, things like contracts, insurance, mm. um, you know, th- those kind of grown up things that one tries to avoid as an entrepreneur. Uh, and and, then, and that was really my start of my journey into growing the business bigger. So it was never really the intention from the beginning to grow it into the monolith that it became. It was a lifestyle business. It was just a business around your life and your passions. And then at some point you decided, actually, I need to turn this into a serious thing. Let's let's bring some professionals on board and turn turn it into a grown up business. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's kind of it's almost like an accidental entrepreneurial moment where you you set out to do something better than others are doing it. And because you do do it well, it snowballs. But I don't know how many people set up businesses to be brilliant global, you know, corporations, or they just set up businesses because they want to do it differently, want to do it themselves. So, you know, it was mm. it was definitely for me um, accidental growth, but necessity, and I loved it. So it was an easy journey. As in, I wasn't fighting to keep it small. I was happy for it to grow. Who was the first client, and how did you win them? So my first client was the NSPCC, Children's Charity, and I worked with them for years on and off. But I spent the first uh, five months, six months, phoning every single person I knew, uh, their aunties, <laughs> uncles, cousins, uh, anyone in any country, <laughs> anyone who worked inside a business, and I could not win any work. Mm. Uh, and I just, it was just before December, phoned up uh, a friend of mine, a friend of mine's wife at the NSPCC, she said she's sitting opposite the head of marketing who, who was talking about doing some accessibility and usability work. We had a chat. I put a proposal through. I heard nothing. And like on the 23rd of December, I phoned her up and I was like, uh, hi, just let you know the, the, the calendar is getting very busy for next year slash I'm going to go and have to get a job with someone else. <laughs> and uh, just want to know if you wanted right. to go, go ahead with the work. And, and she came back saying, oh, hadn't I hadn't emailed you. Yes, we want you to start. I mean, I, I could have fallen off my seat. It was like... Amazing. And so it was a hard thought. You kept really calm and you said, let me check my calendar. Yeah, well, I, I know, you know, you, you've got to have a bit of... You've got to, you know, you've got to put on a professional uh, sort of approach to these things. You know, if I said I'm desperate and if you don't give me the work, I'm going to go bust, then um, they probably wouldn't give me the work. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't a lie necessarily, yeah. but it was... Uh, it, it was, And they were great first clients. They were brilliant. NSBC was a great place to work amazing people you know obviously very worthy uh, to do work for a charity uh, but they got it and, it, and it, we had a great relationship for many years mm. and then the rest is history as you said i mean you went on to win 
Deloitte and a number of other uh, sort of huge brands. So just before we kind of go on, at what point, like, what is it about professionalizing the business? Like, what do you have to do to make that switch from a lifestyle business to a professional business? What are the, what are the main building blocks or milestones that you have to put in place in order to kind of make that transition? I guess one of them is a mindset switch really for you, but also just from an operational point of view, like what are the main things that need to be put in place in order to make that switch from a lifestyle business around my passions and I'm going to Cancun every now and again into now this is a serious, this is a serious business. Did we meet in Cancun? How do you know it was Cancun? <laughs> we were, we were, it was literally, I flew straight to Cancun. Really? Was it? Yeah, yeah, really. Me? No, well, I went to Florida to see my brother and then ended up in Cancun. Oh, okay. I've been following you for a few months. It's, well, it's, yeah, uh, stalking. I, I take this research very seriously. Yeah, thank you. Um, so what are the steps to, to sort of shift from lifestyle to, I guess, what I'd call a proper business? It takes time. I mean, it took me, I, I was I was transitioning for probably 10 years, eight, eight or 10 years. I don't think you ever stop continually mm. trying to become a better business, better structured, better organized. In the early days, it was just starting to put things in place that allowed us to have um, a better brand, a better proposition, a better way of approaching all of our clients and prospects. So we had, a, a, a you know, everyone knew who we were. We had the same message. We had the same templates, contracts for clients, contracts for team members, pensions. Um, uh, I didn't, hmm. you know, it was, it, it's the, the things that as a, as a busy entrepreneur, you probably just don't want to deal with. But as hmm. you start talking to your team, it's for them, it's the difference between staying with you and going somewhere else. So a lot of it is just like the nuts and bolts of of building business. Mm, really fascinating. So so talk a little bit about what you've learned about how to compete with the likes of Accenture and IDO. Because look, you you won some very significant accounts over those brands. You know what have you learned about how to compete with tier one brands like Accenture? Yeah. And so for me, there's a lot. It's a lot about your own your belief. I th- uh, big brands succeed because they believe in themselves. And I think small brands can fail because they don't believe in themselves. So I always set out eight target blue chip clients who had the budget to spend to do proper projects. Otherwise, you're going to be digging around in the weeds, doing 10K, 20K, 50K projects for small businesses. And there's just a, it's hard one. It's very low margin mm. and it's not long. There's no longevity to it, you know. Whereas you get win a client like British Tele, you know, BT or uh, Deloitte or TFL, you know, you could be working with those guys for two, three, five, ten 10 years. Mm. So part of my mindset was very much we've got to appeal to big clients because that's the only way we're going to grow this business and be successful. And then over time, I felt that we actually had something, you know, we had a great culture, we had a way of uh, being able to attract some of the best talent in the market. And so if you connect the best talent to clients who know they need to do things differently, you can compete against anyone. So I, I don't think I went out to try and be better than Accenture. I have a lot of respect for Accenture, Accenture Digital. Hmm. Uh, they've done amazing work. But I did look at some of the 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 size of that business or those businesses makes them slow to move and expensive. So we were just pitching. Mm. We've got as good a people. We know what they know, but we're faster and we're more cost effective. We're not cheaper. Day rate, 
probably the same in the end, but we were quicker. We know we could definitely mobilize faster teams, smaller teams, be more agile. Mm. And we also came with a different approach. Uh, I remember winning uh, one of our big government clients, one of my favorite projects. And, and part of our success was that we didn't wear suits and ties and look like the client and the client knew they were the problem. So they didn't want to hire a business like them. Mm. They wanted to hire someone different. You know, we turn up in jeans and t-shirts and, you know, tell them that we're going to draw pictures and mm. do storyboards and, and do six hats with mm. the senior leadership. And, and they just felt, well, we haven't got it right mm. for the last 10 years. So there's no risk in trying something different. And it turned out <laughs> doing it differently worked brilliantly. It worked. We delivered, the company transformed, the rest is history. Interesting. Love it. Absolutely love it. So just before we go on to talk about your book, Bill Sell Retire, which is a fantastic book, by the way, what was it that, you know, you got to, you know, 13 years in and you decided to sell at 13 years, obviously, you thought about selling a few years prior to that. What were the factors that contributed towards thinking about selling the business? The factors, the main factors, if I look back, were always going to be, how can I get some way of paying back the effort that I and my team have put in? And what I mean by that is, you know, when you run a business, when you work in a small business, you know, my, my, my team, you know, everyone works very, very hard. And most people aren't in it for the money. Most people are in it for the, the, the job. They enjoy the job. They get opportunities. We work with clients. But at the end of that, it would be nice to be able to see some financial reward that makes that risk and effort worthwhile. And there's a lot of risk involved. Uh, and again, that's not just me. That's everyone who worked with me. Uh, you know, you work for a big company. Chances are you'll be able to work there for life. You work for a small company, who knows what's going to happen next month. So always in the back of my mind was, how can I get this company to a position where it will pay me and my team more than just a salary? Uh, and very selfishly, uh, personally, I wanted to be able to pay off debt, um, be able to give my kids a, a you know, choice and opportunity in the future and, and not you know, get to 70, having worked my fingers to the bone and then cark it from a heart attack. Mm. Quite frankly, where's the fun in that? <laughs> so, um, I, you know, my, yeah, I've got exactly. to, I talk a bit about it in my book, but my upbringing was kind of interesting, eclectic from living in a very big house and, and living quite a wealthy life until I was eight to living in a caravan for a year when my dad lost, you know, lost the business and lost everything. Wow. So I, I, that always, always burns into the back of my mind as well. Like I don't want to end up taking my kids to a field with a car and living in a caravan for a year. I want to make sure that we've got security that, you know, we can, you know, look forwards and and, and uh, have just a, a safety net, some security. Although living in a caravan taught me a lot and probably helped me be a good entrepreneur. Sure. Really, really interesting. So at the point when you sold the business, how big were you? Revenue, employees, uh, number of uh, sites, you know, around the world. Just give us an idea as to kind of the size of the business at the point of, of sale. Yeah, sure. So um, employee size-wise, we're around about 70 employees split between London and New York. And New York was growing at quite a rate. We set New York up in 2012 or late 2011, uh, and that grew really quickly. And, and, and it was that, that was a real turning point for the business from revenue point of view, profitability point of view. Uh, I had a, I have a great partner, a guy called Bobby, who I'd known for years, and, and he accidentally ended up joining me. He he offered to help recruit. He lived in New York, 
I've helped recruit and find an office for me and ended up running the company. Hmm. Uh, and, and he had a great mantra, which was to ignore everything I told him and do it his way. And uh, he'd say, yes, yeah, 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 absolutely, Chris. That's a great idea. And then he'd do it, just just ignore it. And, and he grew the business brilliantly in New York. <laughs> Completely differently. Completely differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got like this, you know, we should be all about business transformation. And he said, yeah, I totally embrace it. And then kept running usability labs. But their business grew very fast and it was very profitable. And that, that, that helped us, you know, a lot. And if I hadn't sold that point, we, you know, we were looking at Australia as a, as a next market to grow in. I know a few people over there, um, you know, good for that, that whole region. So, you know, we were, we were running a healthy turnover and, and a healthy profit margin. I guess our profit margin was probably 20, 20, 25% EBITDA, um, you know, when we came to mm. sell. So we were on a good trajectory and we also had a good couple of years ahead of us, which, you know, tipped anyone thinking about selling. And this is often talked about, don't sell when you're, when you're at the peak, sell before you're at your peak, because very often when you're selling a business, there's a, some sort of earnout, some sort of warranty to make sure that you hit your numbers post the deal, mm. not all companies, but for the majority. Mm. And if you're at the peak and you're selling, and even during the the M and A process, which we'll we'll talk about in a bit, um, if your numbers start to drop before you've actually signed the deal, then your value of your deal will slide. So you know we picked the time to sell because it felt like we had a couple more years of good growth, and you know what, you know why wait? Let's let's do it now. Let's talk about your book, Build, Sell, Retire. Great title, by the way. Love it. Thank you. So you say, quote. Nobody told you the truth about selling your business. So what is the truth about selling your business? The original title was The Morning After, which was given to me by James Reed and uh, whether I should tell the world that. But he said it, it sounded like my story I told him over lunch sounded like a bit like getting drunk and the kind of what happens the morning after. And, and, and I... I <laughs> The only reason I didn't call it the morning after was I had to keep explaining to people what the content was. So uh, yeah. built our retire was a bit more does what it says in the tin. Sure, um, but the experience and the truth behind it is, you know, it is a bit like getting very drunk and waking up somewhere random and thinking, "What have I done?" Uh, because the whole experience of, of selling does not go down the route of, of that you think it does. It's far more emotional, far more complex. But it's it, the difference, the change in your life, in your business, in the in the in the way you do things is is so dramatic, and and I think why most people don't tell the truth about their experience is that they didn't believe it wouldn't be what they thought it would be. If that makes sense, they thought it'd be a wonderful um, marching bands, confetti, champagne, out on a boat you know, mm. lunches with, with, uh, CEOs of new clients. Yeah. And the reality is, you know, you've got to work very hard. You're, you're dragged around the world. You're questioned about everything. Your numbers suddenly stop stacking up and you feel the world's against you. And a lot of people fail to hit their targets. A lot of people will fail there to hit their own out. So again, as a proud CEO, am I going to tell you, Hey, Nathan, sold my business last year. It was absolutely awful. I only got half the value. I completely buggered up all of the, uh, all of the earnouts and uh, my staff hate me and my wife's leaving me. <laughs> and that's the honest, brutal truth behind a number of people I spoke to. Honestly, really? I spoke to people and that's literally their story. And, and that's why I interviewed people for the book. Uh, you know, no names, no companies, just uh, keep it confidential. And it was a real eye opener. People have got mental health issues. I mean, I talk about my own 
challenges of anxiety through the process in the book. But it's uh, it's a real shocker. So I wanted to write a book that told the the truth behind the myth that other people could read and then hopefully avoid the pitfalls, hopefully be able to navigate the process with a bit more uh, confidence and, and be ready. Just prepare yourself. It's never going to be perfect. But if you're prepared, you can deal with it. Hmm. Well, it, it it is that it's it's well written. It's short. It's witty in places, which I wasn't expecting it to be. It's practical. Uh, there was so much that I learned about you and the process of M and A uh, through reading it. You say, "quote Most entrepreneurial business owners have a dirty little secret: their public response to selling and their private response." Discuss. Would you sell your business? No, not a chance. I love my company. I love what I do. I'm so passionate about it. I'm in it for life. I'd like my children to take over my company. Uh, Phone call. Hello, this is the CEO of a very large global corporation. We'd like to offer you many million pounds for your business. Yes, I'll sell tomorrow. (laughs) And and that's the dirty little secret. You know, I think we we as, as, as founders and entrepreneurs... We worry what what kind of what kind of message are we giving if we tell people we're going to sell? You know, uh, if we tell our teams, if we tell our clients, if we let people know that one day we won't be running this business. And and the truth is that most of us would sell tomorrow if it meant that we could achieve our our dream, our goals. Be that sell and sell and continue to grow your business, sell and make money, uh, sell and mm. spend time with your family, sell and set up a donkey sanctuary. Who knows? But we, we just don't publicly generally share that because we feel it's too negative. You know, we feel like we're, we're kind of um, manipulating our clients and, uh, you know, press ganging our staff into, into getting the business into a place where we become wealthy. And it doesn't, just doesn't sit with entrepreneurialism. Have you set up the donkey sanctuary yet, or is, is that still to come? <laughs> uh, no, I've not set up a donkey sanctuary, but I do work uh, a lot with two charities, Missing People uh, in West London and with the Prince's Trust, both of which I love and um, both of which kind of is my, my donkey sanctuary thing. <laughs> so I was shocked to hear about the the massive, the crazy amount of due diligence you need to prepare to sell, right? Everything from uh, finances, contracts, clear propositions, um, you know, you you list it in a lot of detail, um, the amount of due diligence that's required and sort of going through old laptops and USB sticks and looking for contracts and 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 things that you've, I guess you've, you've, you know, forgotten about years ago. And that's very painful and time consuming. Uh, and I had no idea all of that was, was sort of involved. You really need to get organized from the beginning and have full-time people working probably years ahead of time to prepare all of that due diligence. Yeah, you never. I don't think you'll ever be properly prepared for a, for a thorough due diligence. So if you've ever had your tax inspected by the tax man, that's literally like the easiest thing in the world compared to selling. M&A, depending on the company's need and, and approach and your structure, you know, some companies do very light M&A. Others will do very, very detailed. So mine was pretty detailed. You know, we, we, we were in New York, so operating under US law and, and financial systems there in London, UK, and we were bought by an Argentinian business. So the mix of different uh, locations, different laws and all that led to an even more thorough process. But, you know, we thought we were okay. 
the reality is we were probably only a third of the way there. And I think most companies are probably only a tenth of the way to where they need to be because we'd already been through a conversation with, a, with an agency to sell and it didn't go further than a kind of initial uh, investigation review, but I'd started to organize my business because we were in a bad place from a you know back office point of view. My number one tip for anyone thinking about selling ever is you know, don't be afraid to get someone in on a regular basis to reorganize your back office, you know, to get better processes in place. It doesn't have to be run like, you know, uh, a, a huge corporate, but you've got to be able to show your P&L over the last three to five years, all your contracts. You've got to have all your finance, uh, insurance, debt, any structure around shareholding that you might have. Everything has got to be documented, accessible online, we call it a data a data warehouse, basically, because it is literally, a, you know, this huge data warehouse. And you hear of uh, deals failing at the last minute because someone 10 years ago, you know, a CEO 10 years ago gave 20% shares to a, an employee who left. Everyone forgot about it. And then mm. the final bit of due diligence pulls out that there's some random shareholder and that random shareholder oh, blocks the sale. Amazing. You know, they say, well, if you're selling for 10 million, I want, you know, I, I want 5 million. Wow. And uh, so, right. you know, things, poor back office, poor financial sort of statements, information and contracts will put off most uh, professional M&A teams because the effort to get the information is more than the value of the business they're buying very often. So you say you sold to an Argentinian company. Did you have much say in as to who were the buyers I know there are so many buyers coming into the market these days. There's a huge amount of private equity around at the moment. Um, and there are lots of other types of organizations that are interested in buying marketing services, businesses. Mm. Did you have much say at the time? Were there many other options on the table? Yeah, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was a, an amazing process. So I, I had kind of the Ogilvy's, uh, Deloitte's, Accenture's, the people I knew, right? The guys right. I'd worked with, my old friends and colleagues. Uh, those are the ones I was targeting. Uh, better the devil you know. And I, I, I'll plug SI Partners, who are my, my M&A mm -hmm. broker. Joe I've worked with them for years, know them very well. Lovely guys, couldn't recommend a better bunch. They... They really understood what we were doing, and they also understood the market very well and where our, a good fit would be. So, we were we were actually approached by an American company who sent us a very uh, kind offer uh, without any negotiation. Just basically said, "We want to buy your company. Here's the deal." Um, it wasn't enough, but it it got uh, got me thinking who who would buy us. So, SI Partners went to market very quietly subtle conversations around the market and came back with a list of 50 companies, five zero companies who wanted to buy us. Wow. What really amazed me is I probably a third or more of those companies, I didn't know who they were. I mean, I feel a bit embarrassed, but companies like Cognizant, um, I had no idea who Cognizant <laughs> were. It turns out they're almost as big as Accenture from a technology point of view. Big Indian, yeah, you know, tech integrator. Yeah. yeah, they're massive. I think they're 250,000 yeah. people at the time. So... SI Partners opened my eyes to to a much wider market. At the time, uh, you know, the 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 VC or P uh, industry wasn't really buying businesses like mine. They are a lot more now. Um, but also the consultancies, you know, the, the big consultancies who have been buying a lot of marketing services businesses were an obvious target. But as I as I worked with SI and as we talked down the sort of long list to a short list, I realized, you know, I wanted to fit somewhere where they weren't doing what we did but they knew 
what we what we did, what the value was, and we could bridge a gap in their services. So rather than join Accenture and be another service design business in Accenture, you know, join someone who gets it but doesn't yet do it. Hmm. Really interesting. Okay, I've got a ton of questions here around the sale process. So when's the right time to sell? Oh, it's like it's like breaking up your girlfriend or any of those things. There's never the right time to sell, but you need to plan ahead of the process. So, you know, I, I coach uh, a bunch of founders and, and I never intentionally go out to coach them to sell their businesses. I coach them to get their business in the, into a position that they could sell it. Because at that point, they're running a very effective company, which is making great profit, growing really well, and is working without their full-time input. So the answer to the question, when do you sell, plan at least a year ahead, probably two. And your, your optimal is give yourself three years to get your company sorted. And either during that process of improvement or at the end of it, you can choose I'll sell or I'll not. Yeah, so it's less about hitting a kind of monetary target or a point in your career. It's much more about making your business attractive, function brilliantly and work really well without you there 24-7. And how do you figure out how much you should sell your business for? Like, how do you work out what's a fair price to sell for? I was watching Jeremy Clarkson's farming program last night on uh, Amazon, uh, which I thought would be rubbish, but it was, it's very good. And uh, he's got a um, he's got a vet there looking after his sheep, and he said, "How much is the bill?" And he went, "I don't know. I'll think of a number, then I'll double it." Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I did it. Now, that's whatever people are willing to pay for it, right? Well, you can you can do a lot to improve the value of your business, but ultimately, your what you do will have a general value and it's uh, and it's a multiple of either your turnover or your profit. So the easiest thing is just to have a multiple of profit. Typically a good a good company in a in a reasonably hot area will be worth 10 times its profit. But using different mechanisms like an earnout rather than just a straightforward purchase and walk away, you can use the earnout to generate additional value because you can show the buyer I can keep growing this company as fast for two years. So they will give you potentially a higher uh, revenue, you know, a, a higher final valuation. So rather than say six times profit, they might give you 12 times profit. Hmm. So, you know, there, there are, there are basic calculations and each, each industry sector in each area is deals with it differently. And each buyer deals with it differently. A build up company, a company that's growing fast as in a, a buyer who's growing fast and acquiring lots of different assets because they need to to show their shareholders that they're 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 you know moving the right way they'll they'll probably buy in a fairly black and white profit margin um you know keep making money and we'll pay you your, your, your amount a breakthrough company and this build up and breakthroughs out of the, the great to good book jim collins hmm. a breakthrough company like accenture they're much, they know what they're doing. They've done, they've made mistakes, they've learned, and they're much more likely to buy and target you with a, a, a financial reward that makes you stay, makes you part of the family, makes you more successful. And if you're more successful than they are. So in summary, it basically is about your profit, how profitable you are. It's then about uh, how good you position yourself in, in, in your sphere of, of influence and it's who buys you, you know, what, what kind of mechanism are they using? How good are they at M&A? 
um, and then that will dictate how much they're willing to pay. Given everything you know about the way the world has changed post-COVID, can we even say post-COVID? We're kind of... It feels like we're going back through it again (laughs) during this time of change. Okay, during this time of change, given all of the changes in technology and and the way the world is, is moving, if you were to set up a new agency again today from scratch with the intention of selling in, I don't know, five, 10 years time, what kind of agency would you build? Oh, that's, so there's two answers to that question. Uh, so the first is I, I don't think I'd ever set up an agency to sell. Now you could do, but you've got okay. to be a bit of a, um, how can I say this without swearing? You've got to be a <laughs> bit of a, um, a taskmaster. You know, you've got to go into it with just a, a good si- single single vision of making more money for yourself, enriching yourself. And you're going to kill your mm. staff and they're going to hate you, but you don't care. Much better. So the question is, if I were to set up a, a successful agency, what would I do? Mm. Because for me, the next agency being success is, I do what I did before in some respects. Uh, I would probably be more data focused, obviously, because data is so important to, to, to the world. But I would still work around the transformation, the digital design transformation and insight sphere, because it actually, you know, it's what I'm good at and it's what I love. And if, you, if you're not passionate about your business, then your business will never succeed. And if down the line in, say, five years time rather than 13, I get back up to the 20 million mark, I could choose to sell at that point or I could choose to share the business more widely, the ownership with my team or I could do a management buyout. You know, there are, there are lots of mechanisms, but I, I don't think I'd set up a company just to sell. It's, it's too, the focus is too narrow and, it, and it's not who I am. Okay, so there are a couple of other lines in the book that I want to get to before we get to our favorite questions that we ask everyone. Uh, so you write, greed and time are both deal killers. Explain. So greed is where uh, I get someone come along and offer me a decent amount of money for my business. But I think my business is worth more. I don't know why. You know, maybe I've missed all my kids' birthdays. I mean, I commuted to the Middle East for two years, three months after my first daughter was born. So, um, you know, I've I've missed a lot. Mm. So I think my business is worth, you know, 50 million, not 30 million. So I I push the buyer um, for more money. And, and I can't really justify it. And, and that what happens is that they get more and more frustrated. And you're not the only company they're looking at buying. They will have three or five similar agencies they're looking to buy. And if you push too hard, they'll walk mm. away. Typically, they'll buy the, the easiest to purchase business that fits best. And so you've got to line your things up. So greed is a killer. And then time equally is a real challenge. You don't want to sell too fast. You might miss the opportunity to, to get the right value. But equally, if you spend too much time negotiating, if your back office is a complete mess, the, the, the M&A world, they're, they're professionals. These companies all have M&A teams. All they do is travel the world, meeting companies and buying. If you're messing them around, they'll just get bored and buy the next one in the list. You know, why waste 12 months when I can buy someone in six months? Right. So it's, it's really imperative that the, the, the seller, uh, you know, gets the right support, so that is they're able to get the... Uh, someone who's been through it or a, a broker to just advise them, you know, don't be an idiot. Don't push it too far. This is the really good value. If it's not right, wait, take it off the table, work another 12 months, add another 20% to your profit and then sell at the price that's right for you. 
What have you learned about having a clear plan for management succession? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what have I learned for the succession? I, I, ironically, or interestingly, I've learned most of my most of my leadership problems I've recognised since stopping uh, running the company. Uh, you know, the biggest challenge you have as a leader, and even creating things like management succession, is you're so busy running the business, you don't have time to sit back and think properly you don't have time to listen to your team like active listening and absorb what they're saying and act on it in a, in a proper way your gut feel firefighting so i did all right with my with my uh leadership sort of on my management succession as in i had a great team i didn't particularly brief them brilliantly i didn't stick to my guns on what we what i thought we should have done post merger you know, my gut feel was we should have just retained who we are, our brand, our identity. And I was probably too quick to, to fit into the Globant brand. And that damaged, you know, I think that damaged both sides. Um, but, you know, I didn't know what to do. I, it was my first time. So, you know, for me, the big lessons are there's no point appointing a team if you don't empower them. You know, I, I hadn't stepped away enough from the day-to-day business to let them be properly effective. Uh, and, and that's the ultimate goal. You know, your 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 sort of succession planning should be a year before you sell, your team are running the business, not the day you sell. You say, okay, guys, over to you. <laughs> okay, I've got a million more questions to go and we need to get you back on the show because, you know, I, I, I've been really in, enjoyed this conversation. But also we want people to, to buy the book because that's where they'll get the most value from it. But last question before we get into our favorite questions at the end of the interview, if people could only take one idea from this book and it's packed with a lot of great insights, just one idea from the book, what, what would it be? That is an incredibly challenging question to ask a man mm. who, well, I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, so one big, one big idea, what, what's the most value from the book? Ultimately, I think it's that you know we don't we don't believe in ourselves as founders enough. We doubt ourselves too much. Whether it's imposter syndrome or doing something and then instantly regretting it, you know, don't don't sort of be the first person to doubt yourself. Always believe in yourself and always push as far and as high as you can. You know, you will you will achieve it. You will be successful. It doesn't matter whether you're a year into your business or twenty years in. It's like get in your head where you want to get to, what your end goal is, your, your dream, your, your life ambition, and go for it. You will make it happen. You've got everything you need to do it, uh, and, and anyone can do it. It's just your own self-belief. Self-belief is what lets most people down. I, I had an interesting radio uh, conversation uh, 18 months ago, and it was for the Women's Radio Network, and we are talking about the difference between the sort of men are very confident all the time and pushy and punchy and often... Mm. Uh, women will sit back and let the kind of guys do all their blah 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 mm. fighty chatty stuff. And as we talked, you know what what I what I found is that it's it's often not a man woman thing. It's it's a confidence thing. You know, if you're worried about uh, failing, you won't try. Mm. If you're confident about it, doesn't matter if you fail, you will try. And it comes much down to education, upbringing opportunities i had amazing opportunities and amazing education which taught me that failure wasn't a problem i mean my teachers told me i was a failure the whole time so um but i had support whereas other people who have grown up in much harder you know from much harder backgrounds mm. you know it's just why risk losing the little you have 
for an opportunity to get something bigger, why not just stick at where I am? So, you know, for me, it's self-belief uh, and, and you know, don't worry about failure, um, be ambitious. So that just coming back to what you said around having that clear vision in your head of the end point, the end goal, and, you know, dreaming big and making that dream in your head a reality. How, when it came to you and that vision in your head, how clear did you make it in your mind? Because there are a lot of people that talk about uh, mood boards and visualization and speaking it into existence. Or, you know, was it in your case, was it a, yeah, this is, a, you know, a general fleshed out idea of where I want to be? Or was it really vivid and well thought out and explicit? Did you, is what you're seeing now what you saw, you know, 10, 15 years ago when you visualized your your end state? No, I I was asked by SI Partners, by Joe, what was what's my number? How much money do I need to be happy if I sell the business? That's going to be, if I'm honest, Nathan, for me, basically, that was the that's the kind of visions, mood boards, end state. And I said the a, number a million pounds after tax mm-hmm. and after fees and after paying you know my team that they get their share out of the business. And Joe said, "Brilliant, million pounds. I think we can do better than that." So for me, I was quite I wouldn't say humble, probably naive. I just I just wanted to, you know, have enough money to pay off my debts and, you know, go on a nice holiday and pay for some bits and pieces of the kids. So I didn't know what my life would be like. I never had it after it. I never had a vision. And that was part of my my problem. When I sold, I had no idea what I was going to do. You know, I was stuck. Hmm. I'm like, I've achieved what I thought was the ultimate goal, but I don't know where I'm going, what I'm doing or why I've done it. And a lot of people I interviewed, back to the, you know, problems at home, a lot of people you know, they, they, their, their whole life is work and, and they go to work every day and they, they sell, they're stuck at home and their other half, you know, they suddenly just don't get on. This ego is brought into the house and, you know, I've done so well and there's a lot of people get divorced after selling. It's quite shocking. I don't know what the statistics are, but they're pretty high. Why, why is that? Well, because, you, you know, you, you put all your passion and energy and life into work and, and there's suddenly no outlet for it and, and you know, uh, a sort of, a very wired entrepreneur um, with no outlet is is a liability in a household. You know, um, mm. don't start rearranging the house. Mm. Don't argue every day with your partner. <laughs> don't try and you know point out their over the ways or coach them over breakfast. Uh, and, and people lose their way. And and in my book, I talk a lot about the the why. Knowing your why is as important as anything else. If you don't know why you're selling, don't sell. Absolutely love it. Okay, let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm excited to ask you some of them as well. Almost like who is Chris Averill? Who is the person behind the brand? I know you've left a lot in your book, but there's more that we can that we can uncover. So tell us about a time when you failed. Might it may even relate to one of the stories that you tell in the book, but tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. So probably my my biggest failure was uh, taking a sabbatical from Arthur Anderson uh, when things weren't great, uh, 2002, uh, in the company. And, and I, I left my long-term girlfriend to go backpacking for a year. And, um, and when I came back after a year's backpacking, having cut my finger off in Antigua on a yacht, uh, I couldn't work out why my girlfriend didn't want to go back out with me. 
funnily enough. Um, <laughs> the good news is uh, I managed to talk her into going for, a, for a, a drink with me, which she did after 18 months of me being back. And then I bought a ring in Hatton Garden and uh, put it in a Haagen-Dazs ice cream pot. And in Kensington Gardens, I asked her to marry me and she said no. But the good news is, the really good news is, I then, about eight months later, asked her again in Cape Town and she said yes. And we're now happily married with two kids oh, and a dog. That's a beautiful story. So never give up, Nathan, no matter how many times they say no. It's not failure. <laughs> well, it was a failure. It was a failure on my behalf <laughs> oh, of going traveling right. and leaving her. That Initi- was the first time. Idiot, you right. know, okay. like madman. <laughs> but, um, you know, I persevered. And yeah. the, the, judge, the judge said it wasn't stalking technically, so it was okay. <laughs> but it all worked out. Tell us about some of your mentors um, who helped you think about growing businesses, your philosophy on competition and and positioning. Uh, I know you talked about Joe Hine and and how much you like him. We've had him on the show a couple of times. He's amazing. But tell us about some of your other mentors. So I think people like uh, Justin Cook, uh, who used to run Fortune Cookie. He's sold out a good few years ago, uh, I think, to WPP. You know, he was a great mentor for me. You know, he he got me into into Beamer, which is a British Interactive Media Association, as a, a, a kind of board member exec, and networked with a lot of very smart people, and that really helped me. I, he he sat me next to Nigel Vaz, who heads up uh, Sapient, and um, on my first mm. dinner, and I was kind of blown away sitting next to this you know, this industry guru. And, and Nigel and I chatted, and I'm a teeny weeny business, and he's a huge business, and we shared the same problems. So people like Justin, mm. uh, Nigel Vaz has always been a, you know, a good guy to go and talk to. Um, the, the most amazing person, um, Phil Jones, who runs Podge, the, uh, the okay. industry yeah. uh, sort of get together. And it is a digital Podge, design Podge, a sports Podge. But Phil was an non-exec for, for a while and uh, for a good, well, for the last two or three years of my time. And he's, he's just a great uh, non-exec, a great friend. And he's never going to, he said to me, I'll never help you win new clients, meet new people, hire new staff, or really solve any problems. In fact, I don't know why you want me as a non-exec, but he did, <laughs> you know, he's a great networker. He's a great calm person. And he was a great <laughs> kind of middleman for me and my team where he could meet them, talk to them and then feed yeah. back without, you know, naming names, what was going on and what I needed to do. Um, and then even people like my my first boss, John Landon. You know, he he's the guy who gave me my first job in Chelsea, working above the six oh six nightclub, watching episodes of the Bill being filmed on Lots Road. And John's always, you know, oh, wow. been on the phone, talked to me, offered me a free desk when I set my company up in two thousand and three, uh, and I went out for lunch with him three weeks ago. So there are kind of people you call on, uh, you know, who you've worked with over the years, who I just you know, great inspirational uh, supporters. And a great list of future podcast guests as well. Justin Cook, Nigel Vaz, Phil Jones, and John Landon. Yeah. They sound all like great future podcast guests. Thank you very much for that. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal and professional development? And what have you read and have reread that has helped you build your business? So I only started reading, I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic, and I only really started reading on my train journeys from uh, London to Welland Garden City in, the, in sort of 1996, but then became an avid reader from then on. 
But I think like most business people uh, or business owners, you, you struggle to find time to read lots. Mm. Uh, and most of my interesting business readings pretty much happened later on in my business life or after I finished. So there are books like I love uh, The E-Myth, it's called. And The E-Myth is the entrepreneur myth. Mm. American consultancy looking at why businesses fail. Three reasons. When someone leaves a company they hate to set up an, in competition, they think they can do the people side, the operations and finance side, and the skill side, mm. the chances are they're probably good at the skill, but pants at everything else. Mm-hmm. So E-Myth's a great book because it teaches you how to either bring in other people around you to make your company a success or learn how to do it all. Uh, good to Great is, I wish I'd read that. I listened to it about five months ago. I wish I'd read that about 15 <sighs> years ago. It Fantastic. is amazing. It's the best business yeah. book out there bar none. Yeah. He's got a new one out, by the way. Black Box Thinking is a is a brilliant book, fantastic book. Um, really, really good to think about process and systems. And mm-hmm. since I've become a pilot, uh, there's a lot in it about checklists and flying and how you avoid accidents. Um, and then the other one I've read, which is a good one if you're thinking of selling, it's a bit it's a bit simple, but it's to the point. Uh, it's called Built to Sell. And it's, it's got a lot of quick, okay. simple tips. Uh, they, they, yeah. It tells the story of a, of a graphic design agency, basically, that, that simplifies, expands client base and becomes very focused and then sells for, for a decent stack of cash. Uh, those are my top. Those would be my top books. There are many, many other mm. wonderful out there. I started reading Barack Obama, bored the pants off of me, and a mate phoned me up and said, I'm going to read your book next. Oh, and I'm so reading boring. Barack Obama. And he phoned me up the next day and said, Barack Obama's pants. I'm reading your yeah. book. Sorry, Barack, but... I mean, it is yeah, dull. It's dull. Yeah, I know. I was disappointed, and it's huge, and it's oh. volume one of like three. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for <laughs> looking forward like, okay. to the, the next one. Who was the other president with the funny hair? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Donald he, Trump. His name who we shall not speak. Don't, don't, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So those are my Please. those are my top books. If you, if you he, say his name three times. He, he, he appears you'll be here yeah so my three books really nice and simple straightforward nothing i'm not into the big complex uh oh okay i'll give you two more sorry uh shoe dog the, the story of nike oh, which is yeah. phil knight yeah. nike uh amazing really? book because it's all about it's a bit like yeah. my book in a way uh it's more about it's about the personal journey as well as the business story and mm. the next next thing which is about the guy whose name escapes me who set up netscape and Silicon Graphics, and okay. it's a, a battling Microsoft yeah. in the browser wars. But, you know, a, amazing uh, story. Very cool. Some great recommendations there. Amazon Prime or Netflix or Disney Plus or Hulu, what are you, or BBC, what's the new one? Uh, BritBox. What are, you, what are you watching or streaming that's good? Well, I'd like to say Home Choice was the best interactive TV service that never actually took off, but that was way back in the 90s. I, I'm, I'm, a next, I'm a Netflix fan. I particularly like foreign language films um, with, with subtitles. I, I learned Spanish watching uh, The Money Heist, Casa de Papel, so um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's mm-hmm. me. Um, but yeah, I mean... I, I watch. I pretty much watch all of them. But Netflix has got the best UI, and I think the best international content. So I'm I'm a full Netflix person. You're a Netflix convert. Tell us something that people will be surprised to learn about you. People surprised to learn about me. Uh, <laughs> God, that's a difficult question. 
Um, I have a massive fear of uh, confined spaces and heights, and I'm a pilot. What? <laughs> I didn't used to. I okay. used to have no fear of heights and no fear of flying. But since taking my company through the uh, through the sale process, uh, I used to fly all the time for, for work. And I got to a point, which I talk about in the book, I got so anxious, had such bad anxiety that I was struggling to get onto a commercial flight. Um, I mean, I sit there in my seat thinking, I'm going to have to get off this plane. I was all right when it's we taken off, but it's it's totally the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me, and and totally impossible for me to get my head around why or how. And I still suffer a bit from it, but I, I I decided to learn to fly as I've always wanted to, but as a way of trying to beat the anxiety. Like you know, I can't let this rule my life. Right. So the best way to tackle it is in the in the space that I fear most. Wow, sort of six thousand feet up in a very small perspex box, um, being powered by a nineteen sixties engine. That's so exciting. How often do you get out? How often do you fly? Uh, given COVID and the weather, I only passed last year. I only got my license last year, but I've done 90 hours okay. and um, I'm I'm wow. hopefully flying uh, next week. So I try and fly every week, every couple of weeks. I'm building my experience at the moment. So I've got a long way to go. Super exciting. Love it. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? I see a bike on the wall behind you. I see that you're a very fit guy. You're in shape. What do you, what do, you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Firstly, thank you so much, Nathan. That's very kind. Um, I, I, I've always, I've always felt that, that physical fitness is mental fitness anyway. So, you know, and I, the mm. times I've been ill at work is when I've not been exercising. Mm. So I, I do. I've got a. I, of course, I have a peloton because I'm middle class, and you know that's what all middle class people do. But I don't wear peloton leggings, but they're just so good. They are amazing. Do you know <laughs> no, what? But the, they're just really. They're brilliant. and the instructors. I mean, I do. I do yoga, Pilates, HIT, and the cycling. And the instructors, like the music, some of the guys I follow in the States. I mean, I, I love mm. hip-hop and uh, R&B. The music and, is amazing. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, honestly, it's awesome. So I love Peloton. Yeah, the music, um, yeah, it is. And I sail. I'm sailing tonight. I sail a racing in, in Limington, the coast, on a small boat, and I'm sailing that tonight and uh, off for four days trip in storms and heavy rain for the next four days down the coast. Um, so those kind of my, my bit of road bike, lots of peloton stuff, sailing and, uh, keeping mentally fit. Nice. Uh, I, I do this coaching. I coach a few businesses. I work with a couple of coaching companies, um, and I coach other f- people like myself, you know, uh, who are running businesses and struggling or running businesses and unsure how to grow or where to go. And, and that really helps me, you know, keep sharp because you, you know you can't just sit around all day doing nothing learning to fly was great because i'm not a as I say, as a dyslexic all the maths and things were pretty challenging but um you know that helped keep my brain going and does but i love the coaching i love the human interaction and the problem solving and the the, the active listening uh, I, I really enjoy mm. Really love it. Last couple of questions and then I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a millennial or a young person that comes to you and says, hey, I want to set up, I want to set up an agency not to sell, but because it's my passion and because I'm driven and because I'm passionate and it's something that I really want to do. What advice do you give him or her? So the first thing I'd say is don't ever be put off by what anyone else tells you. Because too many people, especially in the UK, we don't support entrepreneurialism enough. Uh, there's lots of different reasons why. We're just not very good at backing um, people who, who aren't don't fit the mould. When I first set my company up in 2003, you know, I had, I had a couple of friends say to me in pretty quick succession, what happens if you fail? You know, and it's straight away, I'm like, what sort of positive message is that? Yeah. Whereas if you work in America or Australia or 
I mean, lots of countries, but I've got experience in both yeah. of those. You know, you tell someone you're self-employed, yeah. they're fascinated. How do you do it? How do I get out of my day job? You know, I really want to do something entrepreneurial. So my, my advice for someone starting out, young or old, is, is don't, you know, the naysayers ignore them. If you care about what you do, if you have a passion for what you do, you will be successful. There's no doubt about it. There's nothing stopping you to succeed, but it is very hard and it takes time. So, you know, my daughter's 13. She wants to be a TikTok Instagram star. Um, you know, I'm trying to get her to understand that these people didn't like, just they post one video. Yeah, of course, everyone does. I want to. Uh, but they didn't post one video. They've been making videos <laughs> for 10 years you before. Can. But thank you. Yeah. Uh, I tried. I can't. Yeah. Uh, um, they've been making videos. Ever. So it's it's like, it's like there's, there's no there's no shortcuts to success. Yeah. Just get on. Work hard. But if you care, if you have a passion, honestly, you will make it successful. Doesn't matter what it is you're doing. So that thing with the mentality in the UK of pessimism and versus American optimism when you're setting setting companies, I've heard that so many times over the years, and the best explanation I've heard for why that is, is because of the history and the legacy in the UK. So because the UK is so old and, you know, there are monarchies and the the, envir- the built environment around us goes back thousands of years, it's very steeped in history. We're very steeped in uh, history. And because of that, things don't change and haven't changed for a very long time. Mm. As far as kind of culture and built environment is but if you think about america and australia they're very new places it's new new country undiscovered and it's you know 250 years or something like that could that have something to do with that mentality like that's the best example that i've heard or explanation as to why it is like that because it's it's weird isn't it it is weird and i think you should write a book about it because it's it's the kind of unanswered question is yeah. why are we so against success in this country uh, you know what you're d- genius you're i think you're absolutely right new world new ideas yeah. everyone has been brought up on a diet of we've just got to punch out and try and do something to succeed like the founding fathers in America, if we don't yeah. make this crop grow or make it across that mountain, yeah. we will die. If we don't make then this mine produce yeah. gold, we will have no money to buy food. We will die. Sure. And like you say, we've kind of lived, uh, I guess we live on trade on a history of, you know, dominating the world and have been successful and our social kind of grading, you know, upper class, middle class, lower class stuff that that also impacts it you know where people people may be just thinking well what gives you the right to succeed mm. you know rather than well done go for it like if you own a ferrari in america and you park it on the street people come up to you and say how did you how do you afford a ferrari and you say i run my own mm. company and they say oh my god that's amazing like you know i would love to do this mm. if you own a ferrari in england and you park on the street people come up and spit at you Twat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's not entirely true, but but the general opinion is, you know, why would you drive such a flash car? You know, what's wrong with you? You know, what you should get a proper job, give more money yeah. to charity. It's like so. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, the history plays yeah, a big part yeah. in why why we are like we are, and and other countries are much more entrepreneurial and more back. Sorry, we create the more startups in the whole of Europe. We have the best scientists, mm. the best product designers, you know, the best engineering talents, the best service industry. But you know, we just don't don't support that 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 sort of uh, entrepreneurial outlook like the rest of the world does. And my final question, Chris, what do you know about growing and selling an agency today that you wish you knew in two thousand and three? 
Good question. Very, very good question. Because I, I literally wake up every night thinking, God, I wish I'd done that. Um, <laughs> so my, 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 really my top things are when I left Anderson and went backpacking, uh, you know, that I, it was a kind of deal, but I should have kept in touch with clients. And then I didn't realize Anderson was going to be shut down, but you know, I, I didn't have any clients to start with. Like, like this is, you know, if you set up a business and you've got old clients you can bring over, your business will grow fast. Winning work is the hardest thing to do in business. And it starts on day one and it never finishes. So really, you know, if you can start a business with a client, you, that's a shortcut to success. And then uh, the speed of growth. If you set a business up, why not just plan to be huge? Why not just plan to be the biggest at what you do and the best of what you do? Love it. And then if you don't make it, hey, it doesn't matter. But faffing around a kind of four, five, eight person size business for a few years just puts the brakes on your on your you know, potential. And eventually you're going to get there. So do it from day one. Mm. The best analogy I have for that is you're at bat. It's like an American analogy. I don't watch baseball, but it's, it's beautiful. You're at bat. Why punt? Swing for the fences. You know, so the pitcher is going to throw the ball at you anyway. Yeah. Why, why just punt? Like, why don't you just take your chance and just smash it out of the park? Smash it out of the park. Hey, not to be sad, it's all cheesy, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. Love I it. agree with you entirely. Love it. Brilliant. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure, Nathan. Honestly, I've really enjoyed it. And I, and I look forward to if, if anyone agrees, disagrees, or wants to, uh, wants to know more, then, you know, it would be, uh, I'd love to hear. We have been speaking with Chris Averill. He is an entrepreneur, founder, author, and leadership coach and mentor. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 140 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in agency land. Thank you for your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencyfieldmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Sarah Spence is our production assistant. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Boaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.